This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.19, A Fateful Encounter, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan. And hey, if you're going to live on a boat, you should probably teach your children survival swimming. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and happy to tell you that Camille has been supplanted in my most annoying list. It is now Beltorchka who annoys the heck out of me. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 246 patrons. It's probably a little higher than that, but we're at the beginning of the month, and Patreon doesn't count a patron unless the payment has been processed. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Magnus A, Devin M, Neuron, Gojiraman, and Justin B. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com patreon. We also need to thank Peter B and Emery L for buying us books from our wish list. We can't wait to read them. You too can contribute to the podcast by buying us research materials, copious amounts of tea, and other things we need behind the scenes. The link to our wish list is at the bottom of our homepage, gundampodcast.com. And don't forget that we need your questions for our upcoming Q&A episode. That will be on November 16th, 2019, but we need your questions by November 2nd. And we want to hear your Gundam takes for our first forum episode. That one comes out on November 23rd, but we need those Gundam takes by November 10th. Send them to us by email at gundampodcast.com and put Q&A or forum in the subject line so that it doesn't get lost. In case you're wondering what kinds of things we're looking for for the forum episode, it can be explanations of why we're wrong about something, something you think we missed, regular opinions. I think somebody sent us a poem. It can really be anything. And now back to Mirai Captured. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 18 Mirai Captured or Toroareta Mirai. I think there might be a neat double meaning encoded in this week's episode title. Toroareta does mean to have been captured, the way it's used in the English translation of the title, or to have been arrested, but it's not the only word that you could use to say that. You could also have said tsukamata. But when it's written without kanji, as it is in the title card for this episode, torawareta might also be taken to mean to be swayed by, to be convinced by. So this double meaning captures both the main action of the episode, which is Mirai's literal arrest, but also it captures that sense of her trying to make a decision throughout the whole episode and ultimately deciding what she and her family ought to do. Now after the recap and our talkback, we have researched this week about some Gundam names. 
Just one research piece this week because I am working on a very big, very long, very comprehensive piece on attachment theory, which will be ready for next week's episode. Look forward to it. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last week. Chaos reigns in New Hong Kong today after the radical spacenoid terrorist organization AUG unleashed their terrifying Gundam-type mobile suits on the city's innocent inhabitants. Witnesses reported seeing AUG's infamous Mark II Gundam, accompanied by a new and gigantic black Gundam-type mobile suit. AUG's black Gundam opened fire indiscriminately on the city, leading some users on my Earth to immediately dub it the Psycho Gundam. Dozens of Earthnoids were killed and hundreds more were wounded in the attack, not to mention the billions in property damage inflicted on the heart of one of Earth's most important and historic cities. Although today's stunning attack represents a major escalation in Ayug's war against the peace-loving people of Earth, it is nonetheless consistent with the hateful and violent culture of these backward spacenoids. Today's tragedy follows weeks of AUG propaganda broadcasts by leaders like Captain Heckner, Quattro Formaggio, and former punk rock prodigy turned spacenoid extremist Katz, boasting about AUG's mighty new Gundam mobile suit and its so-called new type pilot. The Titan's intelligence agency has reassured us that AUG's warlike rhetoric and increasingly horrific attacks are the last gasps of a dying organization, reflecting the weakness of their cause and the desperation of their leaders, facing imminent defeat at the hands of our valiant Titan defenders. Perhaps AUG believes that they can intimidate the people of Earth into submission with their oversized black Gundams and their bloodthirsty fake new types, but they are wrong. We will not be intimidated by these petty tyrants from space. No matter how many Gundams they send at us, no matter how many faux new types they concoct in their wicked space experiments, even though Jaburo is a smoldering, irradiated wasteland, even though the oppressive specter of the Zabi clan still burns in their hearts, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in their colonies. We shall fight on the moon. We shall fight them on the beaches. We shall fight them on the polo grounds. We shall fight them in our mansions. We shall fight them in our rooftop infinity pools. We shall fight them at our gala luncheons. We shall fight for the Earthnoid way of life. And we shall give the Titans whatever they need to defeat the Spacenoids once and for all. And now the recap for Mirai Captured. A small boat drops from the Sudori to the sea below, its four taking off without leave. Namikar pleads and scolds, accusing four of being selfish, but four ignores her and heads toward the city. Concerned about the investment four represents, Namikar convinces Wooder to send four Hyzaks out looking. The Aduma crew are almost done loading the supplies they purchased from Luo and Ko, and Amaro and Camille are enjoying a brief rest from the near-constant fighting. Amaro and Beltorchka visit Mirai at the ship where she and the children are staying while they wait for tickets to space. He proposes that instead of waiting for shuttle tickets, they come aboard the Audumla, where they may have more chances to get to space. But Mirai is undecided. 
She wants to see bright, but the risk to the children is too high on a warship. An impatient Beltorchka tells Amaro they should be going, and Amaro urges Mirai to make her decision quickly. The Aldumla leaves in the morning. Once they're away, Beltorchka lets her irritation show. She can't understand why Amaro is so eager to get Mirai to come on the Aldumla when she's neither Ayug nor Karaba. Waiting in a car nearby, Camille sees four run down the sidewalk. She seems happy, and he can't help but smile at her. Meanwhile, she overhears Beltorchka and Amaro arguing, and recognizes both Amaro's name and the name of their ship. She also sees Amaro say goodbye to Mirai, and wonders how they know each other. As they walk down the street, Camille spots Beltorchka and Amaro. Beltorchka is surprised to see Camille there, and angry that he feels the need to check up on them. After all, she is looking after Amaro. Camille bristles at Beltorchka's attitude, asking why Amaro doesn't tell her to be quiet and reminding her that a lot of people worry when they don't know where Amaro is. And anyway, Hayato sent him to tell them to return to the ship. They agree to head back, but just after Camille jumps in his car, Four comes up to the window, asking for a ride to the old city. He's happy to be asked, and the two of them take off, chatting all the while. Camille is briefly jealous when Four's questions about Amaro make him think she's a fan, but she lays her head on his shoulder and says, I'm just looking for someone who understands me. At a discreet distance, a Titan's officer follows them. In her room, Mirai is thinking about what to do when three armed men arrive to capture her and the children. The Titans saw her with Amuro and have decided to take her hostage. A message from Wooder plays on the local radio, demanding that Ayug hand over the Audumla within 24 hours, or the Titans will open fire on the city of Hong Kong. If Ayug tries to attack the Titans, they will kill the hostages. The moment Amaro hears the message, he takes off, telling Beltorchka to return to the Audumla without him. He steals a boat and goes to exchange himself for Mirai and the children. In the car, Four asks Camille if he's a member of Ayug. Only by chance, he says. And are you a pilot? She presses. You could say that. Abruptly, she tells him she'll get out where they are, but tells him that she hopes they'll see each other again. Stephanie, on the Audumla to oversee the completion of Luo and Ko's deal with Karaba, rushes over to Hayato. I don't know who these people are, but we can't give up a Garuda-class aircraft for them. Three hostages are not more important than all of Hong Kong, and they're certainly not more important than Ayuk's principles. She is in contact with Hong Kong's government and suggests to them and to Hayato that the Audumla flee instead. It's during the negotiations with the Titans that Beltorchka calls, distraught, to tell them what Amaro has done. On his arrival at the Titans' boat, it seems that Amaro has been successful. Mirai and the children are allowed to board the speedboat he brought. But before they can get far, the boat is suddenly stuck. A Hyzak, hiding under the surface of the water, has grabbed hold of the hull. Meanwhile, a new message broadcasts on the radio. The Titans reject the proposed compromise. If the Audumla flees, they will kill the hostages. Camille finally arrives back at the Audumla to the relief of Hayato and Stephanie. Hayato has come up with a plan, but Camille's strategy will need to be flawless if he's to save the hostages and Hong Kong. They will pretend to surrender, giving Camille a chance to take the Titans by surprise. A white flag is raised over the Audumla, and Camille takes the Mark II and slips into the bay, carefully approaching the Titans' boat. On the way, he spots three Hyzaks lying in wait. But while sneaking up on them, he knocks into a rocky outcropping on the ocean floor, and they notice him immediately. All four mobile suits launch themselves out of the water, and the sudden waves knock Hathaway out of the boat and into the ocean. Amuro takes advantage of the confusion to escape, diving off the deck of the Titan's boat. 
Immediately, the Titans start shooting at him, and Camille buzzes by again to give Amuro some cover. After reaching Mirai and having her cut the bindings at his wrists, Amuro dives back in to rescue Hathaway, all while Camille keeps fighting the Hyzaks three to one. Amuro, Mirai, and the children make good their escape, and Camille lands a direct hit on one of the Hyzaks. The Titan's boat makes a sharp turn and speeds away. Water rushes down to the bridge to see Namikar at the controls. What are you doing, he demands, but she seems calm. Once we lost the hostages, the mission had failed. Deep in her own thoughts, Four seems oblivious to the people running around her or the explosions in the bay. I came on this mission to fight as a pilot. Murasame Lab has something important to me. If I'm going to get it back, I can't let Wooder get in my way. She tries to hotwire a boat, but is suddenly overcome by crippling headaches. And Namikar has the only treatment. She finally lies down on a park bench, unable to push through the pain any longer. Camille defeats the last of the Hyzaks, and the Audumla crew are all reunited. Beltorchka is furious with Mirai, blaming her for Amaro's risk-taking, and clutches Amaro close while crying into his shoulder. Stephanie thanks Camille for saving Hong Kong, and Camille and Amaro shake hands as the sun sets behind them. Last week, we ended by talking about how Camille and Amuro pose a question to each other and to the audience about whether being grounded and attached is a good thing or a bad thing. They talk about it in terms of gravity and souls and, and flying free and earth and space, but we think it's really about attachment and connection to the world around you and to other people. And I think that this episode takes that one scene, that one question, and expands it throughout the whole episode. This is an episode about attachments to other people, to things, to places, to the world, and what those attachments demand from you. And how they motivate you. And continues to ask, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because the crux of this episode is that the Titans hold two hostages. Hong Kong, and Mirai's family. And later, also Amuro. But Amuro only ends up in their clutches because of the totally reckless actions that he takes as soon as he finds out that Mirai has been captured. And much of the philosophizing in this episode comes from the question of how important is Mirai really to Ayug, to these individuals? Why are they willing to go to such lengths, risk themselves, risk Hong Kong, risk Ayug and its mission? to protect Mirai. This creates a clear dichotomy, I think, between Hayato and Amuro on the one hand, who have that attachment to Mirai, are willing to do anything to protect her, almost anything at least, and then Stephanie and Beltorchka and Camille, who don't really understand why she's so important. But even within those categories, there's grades of difference. Like, there's a difference between Amuro exchanging himself and getting himself captured and Hayato being like, well, I think I have a plan and here's what we're going to do and we're going to make it look like we've surrendered, which is still risky, admittedly, oh, yeah. but is not the same as going off half cocked, like jumping in a boat and turning himself <laughs> in. Well, absolutely. But that comes down to the differences between Amuro and Hayato. I think Amuro thinks he has a plan. Amuro thinks he has a good plan. He thinks he's going to be able to pull all of this off because he's Amuro, the big hero. I don't know. I think it has more to do with 
that level of like importance of individual attachment being on a spectrum hmm. that to Amaro, <laughs> Mirai and the kids are more important and Ayug less and Hong Kong less than those things are to Hayato. To Hayato, she is important. Like we said, Hayato on balance is willing to risk a lot, but he's still got those other important things in his mind. With Amuro, it's almost like he's not thinking about anything else. Mm. Amuro is not considering the risk to Hong Kong. Amuro is not considering Ayug's principles. I don't think he super cares. <laughs> Yeah, though maybe this just comes down to that difference between Hayato, who has taken on a position of command, and Amuro, who is still, at heart, an individual pilot. Amuro has one resource, it's himself, he risks it. Hayato has the whole Audumla, the whole Ayuk Karaba in Hong Kong apparatus, and the Luo and company ally, and that's what he risks. He still risks it all, he just has a different set of resources, he has different chips to put onto the table. But even that shows some differences in the the way that they exhibit like attachment to the world around them versus independence, that Hayato put himself in a position to have all of these responsibilities and all of these attachments to people and organizations and through organizations to people he doesn't even like know or have any personal connection to, people who he's never met, but who he still has an obligation to. Whereas Amuro has these deep personal connections, but it's very personal. It's very much about him. It's not about any broader idea, ideal, goal. I mean, it comes up very briefly. He mentions to uh, Wooder that the current administration is harming the earth, is killing the earth, and gets kicked or punched or something. <laughs> he gets punched pretty hard for that. Well, and on the other side, you know, you mentioned Stephanie, and Stephanie's complaint is almost mathematical, right? We have three people versus millions of people. Oh, yeah. We have three people versus these big society-changing goals. Those three people would have to be way more important than they seem on first glance. You know, a, a retired pilot and her kids, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, to be worth the risk to an entire large city and to Ayug as a whole. So when Stephanie Luo describes Hong Kong, when she's making this comparison, the word she uses for Hong Kong is Kokutai Toshi, which means global city. And it doesn't just mean like big city or populous city. It means like city that is essential for the world. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a term that gets used for Hong Kong, but it also gets used for London, New York, Beijing, like Cities that are the cornerstones of the international world. And so she's thinking very big, very big picture, like the destruction of Hong Kong would have a cultural and economic impact, probably pretty similar to the scale of the ecological destruction from what happened at Jaburo and the damage to the rainforest. Any damage to Hong Kong would ripple out throughout the world. What I wonder, though, is this is the first time we hear Stephanie mention Ayug, right? We had not, up until this point, had any reason to think that she cared about Ayug or Karaba. The impression we get early on, actually, is of like a very mercenary mercantile interest that is about making money <laughs> and taking advantage of, you know, whatever disordered situation is happening and the sort of confusion and conflict to make more money. Mm-hmm. We know they are selling goods to Karaba, but we've never had any indication that this is ideological. Mm -hmm. 
So when she brings up Ayu's goals, is she trying to manipulate Hayato into making the decision that she wants? Or does she actually care about Ayu's goals? It's a good question. It did not seem manipulative to me. Well, I, I guess I shouldn't say manipulative necessarily, because it may not have been conscious, right? It may not have been her going, oh, this guy's a commander. I know what will get him to decide X, <laughs> Y, and Z. But it does reflect an attempt to shift Hayato's perspective to her side. Like, well, if you don't think that the lives of the entire city of Hong Kong are more important than these three people, maybe you'll think the entire purpose of your organization is more important than these three people. <laughs> maybe so. Though it does seem like there may be more than just an alliance of convenience between Luo and company and Ayug. But until we meet Luo Wu-min himself and find out why Kai recommended this company to Hayato when they were on the run, we won't know for certain. I don't know if I mentioned this last time. I suspect he might be like missing, dead, in jail. <laughs> you think hide, Stephanie's running the show? Hiding out somewhere. Yeah. She talks about herself as her dad's representative because that gives her more legitimacy. Her father's been doing this for a long time and as a man commands more respect than she does. So she keeps him in the background. Whether or not he actually is, is an open question. Hmm. A good question. This has no significance at all, but as long as we're talking about Luo Wumen, I have to mention it. He is the only character so far whose name is oriented in East Asian style with family name first, Luo, and then uh, personal name second, Wumen. Whereas Stephanie, his daughter, has it arranged Western style, Stephanie Luo. I'm also not certain I agree with your placement of Bill Torchka on the anti-attachment side, because I think she is very attached. She's simply only attached to Amaro. <laughs> she only cares about Amaro. She does not care about anything else. But we see her in this episode. She gets angry at anyone who has any sort of connection to Amaro that she doesn't have. Mm -hmm. So we've got Mirai, who's known Amaro for years. They went to war together. They have a bond. That Beltorchka really can't, she can't have that. There's no way for Beltorchka to suddenly in an instant have that. During Amaro's whole conversation with Mirai about having her come aboard the Audumla, Beltorchka almost like, she doesn't loom, but she's in the background for the entire <laughs> conversation with her back turned to them. She's no part of this. She looks irritated. The minute they're alone, she gets on Amaro's case. They're not even soldiers. They're not even Ayug. Why do you care about this person? Like, <laughs> she is very unhappy mm -hmm. that Amaro cares about someone who is not her. Mm -hmm. And she gets mad at Camille, too, when he shows up on Hayato's orders to try to bring Amaro back to the Aldumla. She has a line that's specifically something like, I'm here to keep Amaro in check. I am the one controlling Amaro slash taking care of Amaro. <laughs> not you, not Hayato, me. Mm -hmm. She's possessive. She's jealous. She has really poor boundaries. She exhibits a lot of controlling behavior. She's definitely not unattached. Although I would say that Stephanie's not unattached either. Stephanie's just attached to the bigger picture. What made me put Beltorchka on the other side was, she says, I don't understand what he's doing. She says that to him at the end of the episode, after she's just been yelling at Mirai. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ever since you got here, Amaro has been acting weird and putting himself in danger, and I hate it, and I hate you. That's not what Amaro does. Amaro isn't the sort of person to recklessly go off and put himself in danger. He's, it's your fault. He's forgotten about Ayug. Like, no, not really. <laughs> Just Amaro stuff. Yeah. And Mirai very calmly tells her, like, Amaro is not such a weak person that he's going to totally change just because I'm here. And Amaro tells Beltorchka, like, Beltorchka, leave it alone. And she's like, I don't understand. And then flings herself on Amaro, hugging him and crying. Yeah. Um, Some literal attachment to go with all of the figurative attachment we've been talking about. And I think a lot of her resentment to Camille is, again, Camille has a connection to Amaro that she cannot have. And that she is not a part of. For all that there's obvious conflict there, we've seen a few moments of connection and mutual respect between Camille and Amaro. And most of that is founded in there being Gundam pilots and there being new types. And Beltorchka is not a new type and is not a Gundam pilot. And so... I think she might be a new type. Well, she has that moment with Amaro, doesn't she? Yeah. Early on. But... We did not see her react to Four's presence and Four's like malice in the same way that Amaro, Camille, and Mirai did. Mm-hmm. And she was there with Mirai, but she didn't feel it. Right. So clearly very different experiences. Regardless of whether or not Beltorchka has the potential to become a new type or to be a new type or is a new type, um, there is something between Amaro and Camille that she can never be part of. And I think a lot of that comes down to Camille following in Amaro's footsteps, but being a very different person. And mm-hmm. that creates a unique dynamic between the two of them. One which I think, interestingly, Amaro seems entirely unthreatened by, but I think Camille does sometimes feel threatened by it, and that's why he occasionally uh, makes sort of snide comments <laughs> about Amaro behind Amaro's back, or... Hmm. There are some of those snide comments in this episode, and they're why I was putting Camille on the no attachments side of things, at least in this episode, because after his little sniping match with Beltorchka, when Camille is driving away and Four gets in the car with him, he has some harsh words for Amaro and Beltorchka and their relationship to each other Mm -hmm. that make him sound sort of resentful. Of the relationship, period. The fact that they have clung on to each other in the way that they have. I just think it's interesting because so many of people's reactions to Amaro seem to not be about Amaro, but about the people near him. (laughs) Because Camille describes it as like, oh, I don't have any sympathy or respect for people who hang around like licking each other's wounds. Makes it sound like, oh, well, these are two like damaged, messed up people hang around being damaged and messed up together. (laughs) wallowing in their own sad like i don't have time for that i don't really get a sense that amuro does that i could see that description of beltorchka fitting uh to some degree but that feels very much like a projection of like oh you're with beltorchka therefore hmm and the same way that beltorchka is like amuro is taking all these risks and it's because you're here <laughs> rather than like seeing amuro for who he is but amuro just a couple of episodes back when he first started dating, is dating even the right word? Who knows what they're doing? We don't We don't have any clue. Well, when Amuro and Beltorchka started whatever it is between them, Amuro did seem a lot more like he was a damaged person who needed somebody to lick his wounds for him. 
having his wounds licked seems to have restored him somewhat. And the Amuro that we're seeing in this episode is very different from the Amuro we saw just two episodes ago. That's true. He's become much more confident and comfortable. And if you remember, he actually seemed pretty threatened by Camille back then. Yeah, but he's also clearly gotten over it, that he can look at Camille and say, I'm not going to take any credit for how this kid turned out. He is nothing like me. <laughs> and but that's he's, great. But he's going to be better than me. And that he can say that sort of comfortably and proudly and happily and not in a like, mur, 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 why didn't they give me the Gundam <laughs> yeah. grumping kind of way. Well, he's gone from having no meaning and no purpose to having something to do. So does Camille hate their relationship because he thinks it's a sign of Amaro staying in that uh, sort of wallowing in self-pity phase? He feels like it's a sign of continuing in that sort of mood. Or Camille is jealous of Amaro. Camille wants his own relationship. Going back to the beginning of the series, Camille has a lot of difficulty forming attachments with people. He seems desperate for some sort of connection, desperate for friends and respect but, uh, and lovers. But at the same time, he finds it really difficult to form those bonds and he's pushing people away. Yeah, I was going to say, he's constantly pushing people away. This is not something that has gone away. Just two episodes ago, we see him standing alone while the entire rest of the crew is grouped together in the background, high-fiving each other. Mm -hmm. And Camille is alone, staring off at the stars. He is a loner. He is alone, but he doesn't want to be, even if he doesn't know how to be any other kind of way. But he's also learned through the course of the show how to play like part of the group when he needs to or wants to. Going back to his argument with Beltorchka, he tells her people get worried when they don't know where Amaro is, as if like she's being rude to the entire crew by running off with Amaro and not leaving word of where they were going to be and when they were going to be back. We know this is not true. We just saw Hayato a scene before being like, oh, Amaro and Camille had some stuff to do in the city. They'll be back in a bit. Like nobody is worried <laughs> about them. Maybe Camille is worried about them. He comes up with a good plan. He fights very smart in the battle in this one. He's really sweet with Mirai's kids. He's such a good big bro. The scene of him walking at the end holding Taemin's hand is just like, my heart grew three sizes that day. But it's also possible that this is not an act per se. It's just that like a person can be friendly a person can care about doing a good job a person can be kind without necessarily having attachments mm -hmm. you can be a good friend you can be a good comrade you can have relationships without having attachments like that's they're different things mm -hmm. i feel like we need adam here to talk about buddhism <laughs> with us Adam is a friend of ours who is a Buddhist and spent some time in a monastery. And so he's the most accessible authority for me on <laughs> matters related to Buddhism. In some ways, I think this episode shows us that having those attachments can actually make you less effective as a member of the crew. Like Camille has become a very effective cog in this machine of the Audumla Ayug Karaba. And to continue the machine metaphor, as a cog in the machine he has to connect to all of the other bits around him in order for it to function but if it gets too attached if it starts to get sticky 
then the machine doesn't work so well anymore. And it's that stickiness in this episode that causes Amuro to run off recklessly after Mirai, instead of putting together a plan, instead of going back to the Adumla and joining Camille so they can use a two-pronged attack strategy or something like that. Amuro is very heroic in this episode. It's pretty cool when the Titan's boat is being rocked and Amuro is able to kick one of his guards and jump into the water with his hands still tied and escape that way. That's all very impressive and cool, but Amuro doesn't help the situation at all. Nope. I mean, he saves Hathaway from drowning. A peril that Hathaway was in because Amuro showed up and Mirai and the kids tried to leave by boat. <laughs> Who knows what would have happened if Amuro hadn't been there, but there's no indication that Amuro helped in any way. That's true. And Amuro and Camille's handshake at the end feels very much like a thank you from Amuro to Camille. Yeah. He's expressing gratitude. And we get that very heroic shot of Camille with the sunset behind him and the camera is looking up at him. It's, yeah, it's his hero shot. <laughs> yeah, everything about Camille in this episode is heroic and impressive. Mm, I have one bone to pick with that. Uh, he made one very sexist comment and I wanted to throttle him. Which one? Oh, you think, you think there's more than one. Um, I was thinking of the one where he's arguing with Beltorchka. And he looks over at Amuro and says something like, why don't you tell her to shut up? It's very like, why can't you control your woman? And I got very angry. And I don't like Beltorchka. Yeah. But that was so out of line. Yeah. That really felt like the times sneaking into the show. Like, yep, this was made in the 80s. Were you thinking of his interaction with Stephanie when you were like, which one? I was. The interaction with Stephanie feels more bizarre than necessarily like hostile and misogynist. I feel like we're getting a parallel to some degree to Amaro and Matilda because we've got like a young man interacting with an older woman who is powerful and strong and holds a position of respect and responsibility And he, in his mind, is comparing her to, like, women his own age he knows. And that there's something distinct and different Mm -hmm. about, like, a mature woman versus a young woman or girl his own age. And that this brings out something in him, like a feeling of kindness, a feeling of... Because in the context of the conversation, it's she first makes sure that he's going to be careful, and second... She's really worried about Hong Kong, and she wants to know he's going to do everything he can to protect Hong Kong. I like that. I like Stephanie, like Matilda, being a kind of good influence, good role model for Amaro and Camille at this particular vulnerable moment in their lives, where she's unattainable in a way because Mm -hmm. of the difference, but her strength and her kindness and her confidence offers both of them something that they desperately needed to see in that moment. Confidence both in themselves and in the young man. One of the most important things that Matilda gives Amaro in that first interaction is at a time when he's been beaten down, broken down, you know, exhausted, worn out by the fighting, Matilda shows up and says, you're very impressive. You might be an esper. You're really cool. Like, keep fighting, kid. She has confidence in him, and that gives him confidence. And here, with Stephanie and Camille, he's going out on this difficult, dangerous mission, and she says, you know, I really think you can do it. 
I hope you've got a plan, kid. <laughs> but I think you can pull it off. And then we have the contrast between Camille and Four. Mm. Because we see the beginnings of some connection there. And it feels very much like a first date. <laughs> and, you know, they're driving and talking about each other's names and how... You know, uh, uh, Camille says to Four, oh, that's a, Four Murasami is a difficult name. And she's like, I can't help it. <laughs> and she can tell that he doesn't like his name, but she likes it. He tells her his name. She says, oh, that sounds very kind. And he just like turns <laughs> and looks at her silently. She's like, oh, I can tell you don't like it. But she likes it. And you can tell that that makes a difference to him. Yeah. They both like flying and everything to do with flying and gliders. He's like, oh, so you like gliders? And she's like, yeah, I like everything to do with flying. Oh, me too. <laughs> because this is part of a mission for her, she does try to establish like if he's with Amuro and if that was really Amuro. And he thinks maybe she's a fangirl and starts to get jealous. <laughs> and she leans on his shoulder I'm just looking for someone who understands me. And in a way, she means I'm looking for the person whose presence I felt in that fight. I'm looking yeah. for the pilot of the Mark II. But it also sounds like a line. As she puts her head on his shoulder. Although I read an article just yesterday about uh, on dating profiles or in like chat with someone who you might date. Them going on and on about how misunderstood they are is a huge red flag. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Less so, I think, with like a teenager or a young person. But if you get to be like 30 and still have a have a thing about being misunderstood, probably the problem is you. What teenager really feels understood? None of them. That's my point. They all feel misunderstood. So a teenager being like, no one understands me. I just want someone who understands me is okay. It's less of a red flag. Pink flag. <laughs> yellow flag. I don't know. <laughs> Do you feel like four presents any other red flags? I don't know about red flags, but we certainly learn some other interesting things about her. For instance, she doesn't care about the Federation. She doesn't care about the Titans. She's here because the lab has something very important to her and because she is dependent on Namikar for the medicine to deal with her headaches, her apparently crippling headaches. And something to do with her memory. The first line of the episode is Namikar yelling at her, come back. If you run away, you'll never get your memory back. Right. So somehow her memory is tied up in this. We don't know if whatever sort of experiments were done on her caused the headaches or if the headaches are unrelated, but she is dependent on them for treatment for the headaches. We also see when she has the headache and she's like in the park, splashing water in her face and laying on a bench and stuff, there are huge explosions <laughs> going on in the ocean, like right near her, and she does not seem to notice or react to them in any way. See, I think the headaches are related not to the explosions, but to the fight. Mm. All the violence, but in particular, Camille out there fighting, exuding fightingness from his new type of brain. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's causing her to have the headache in that moment. Maybe it's just a lot of new type activity. Maybe it's specifically the fighting kind. But I can't overlook the significance of her standing there as the explosions go off behind her, racked with pain, and saying, after a calm period, this always happens. She's talking about the fight. She's talking about her headaches. But in a meta sense, she's talking about the violence. After a calm period, there's always the fight. 
And Namika are proved to be a bit of a dark horse, huh? <laughs> they make a huge thing in this episode of her being seasick. She's sitting in the, it's like a large speedboat or, or some, a yacht of some kind. And it's even voice acted that she's like trying so hard not to throw up. They bring her a bag. Yeah, a dude brings her a bag. She's sitting there with her kerchief to her face. like. But then when the mission goes sour, Wooder comes downstairs to to the control room and she is there like piloting the boat away. <laughs> well, she turns so swiftly, she knocks one of their own guys into the water. And he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, the this has clearly not worked out, so I'm getting us out of here. And he's like, oh, not seasick anymore, huh? <laughs> Was she faking the whole time? Maybe. Yeah, I'm starting... There's clearly to, something going on with her. I'm starting to think that whole vibe I got from her last episode, that she was this sort of like weak, fluttery person, uh, might have been an act. Might have been a smokescreen the whole time. Hmm. There were some really cool visuals in this episode. I especially enjoyed... When uh, Camille and Four are in the tunnel. Oh, yeah. They drive through a tunnel while they're talking about names, which felt very symbolic. They're in this like dark kind of enclosed space. It suddenly feels more intimate in the car because there's no sense of what's happening outside. There's no sense of the wider world. And the lights in the tunnel, because they're like orange red safety lights, make both characters look very different. We have the model plane, which we mentioned previously might be a comet model airplane, uh, but that appears in the sky when that first radio broadcast starts about the hostages. And in the moment that Amaro learns that there are hostages and who it is, the model plane is in a dive, is, is crashing straight down into the ground. And then in the kidnapping itself, it's shot in such a way, I wonder a little bit if it's supposed to be one of the kids' perspective. Not entirely, but because... When there's the sound at the door and Mirai goes to answer, we only see like the top of the image is the doorknob. So we're looking from the doorknob down. So we see a hand open the door. We see that there are people there. We hear all the dialogue of the scene, but then there's the dropped basket. There's the three pairs of feet and legs. And again, it's the legs like up to just above the knee, maybe, walk across the screen and disappear to the other side where we know Mirai and the children are. And then we don't see any of the rest of it. We, we hear, you know, Mirai saying for them not to lay a hand on her children and what do they want and what are they doing here? Mm -hmm. And the kids yelling for their mother. But all we see is the floor and this overturned basket of laundry. Everything about it is very scary and ominous. And in fact, when the door opens, all you see is a brief shot of a hand holding a gun. I wondered if it wasn't an homage to a similar scene from some spy movie, because it really feels that way. This is the knock at midnight. This is the secret police arrest. And it's just as confused and terrifying as the real thing is. There's the animated segment in Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. Where she hides under a bed mm -hmm. and the legs, you see the legs like come into the room. And that's based off a scene from a Coen Brothers movie, which is a neo-noir gangster movie. Which one? Miller's Crossing. I wonder if all of this goes back to a common visual reference, if you go back far enough. This episode also continues the running visual motif of the water. Not just the water of the harbor where the battle takes place, but pointedly 
during the battle, even though she's not part of it, for in the park, splashing water on her face and drinking from the drinking fountain. And this is a visual motif that has been pretty consistent ever since Camille and company came down to Earth. In the Jobro episode, there was the river. At Kennedy, they were on the coast. At Hickory, they were in the fog and on the coast. At San Francisco, they were in the bay. In the first episode of Hong Kong... They don't fight in the water much in the first episode. Most of the fight's in the city. Although we do see the Psycho Gundam arrive at the Sudori, get hooked on, and then drag the Sudori down until the Psycho Gundam is skimming the water. But I think this continues the same visual symbolism that we talked about a few episodes ago with the water as being either a metaphor for the conflict, for fightiness, or for a kind of spiritual pollution that is generated by the conflict and then attaches to the people who participate in it. Or possibly in an even broader sense, representing what it does in a lot of dream analysis, the subconscious, broadly. Which, you know, makes it especially relevant that most of Camille's combat in this episode takes place underwater. Hmm. In a way, Camille's combat in this episode reminds me of when Amuro was fighting in the fog over Hickory, and he was able to move in and out of the fog and use it to his advantage. Here, Camille is fighting these aquatic mobile suits, but he's able to move in and out of the water and fight them more or less on his own terms. And for the first time, we see Camille fighting alone and taking out the entire enemy force. And this in spite of a couple of mistakes. We know he's trying to be very sneaky and then he accidentally knocks into the hard ground underneath him and starts a small landslide (laughs) underwater slide. I don't know what you call it if it happens under the sea, but... You call it a mistake. Despite blowing his cover, he still manages to take on three Hyzaks by himself. And is able to protect Amaro. When Amaro is in the middle of escaping and he's being shot at, Camille sees him, sees that he's in danger, and then flies close enough to rock the boat and prevent the Titans from shooting Amaro. Doing saving people in battle stuff, that sounds like Amaro. Although we don't see Camille show much concern for Mirai and family. And that actually brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you, Nina. It's not going to surprise you for me to say that parenthood and the relationships between parents and children has been one of Gundam's driving themes since the first episode of First Gundam. And we've seen, especially in Zeta Gundam, this theme of motherhood coming back again with Camille's mother, with Fa's mother, with Frabo, and now with Mirai. And Mirai spends the whole episode here trying to make a decision about what she should do for the good of her children as a mother. She's deciding whether or not to go into space, weighing her and Bright's desire to be reunited and their desire to raise the children in space against the fact that it's a war zone. And she ultimately decides not to go. And I saw the nuances of her decision somewhat differently because Amaro even points out to her, even if she could get to space, there's no telling that she'd be reunited with Bright. You know, Bright is the captain of a ship. He's going to be all over the place. Uh, It's not going to be the white base again, where the whole family is all gathered together on one ship. Yeah. And so 
her situation is clearly somewhat dangerous being out and about, especially being the wife of a known deserter, turncoat. One of Ayug's leaders, in fact. So my sense was that Amaro was suggesting she and the children come aboard the Auduma because it's theoretically, in his mind, safer than being out and about and unprotected and might afford them opportunities to go into space, possibly. He knows they're going to be trying to get Camille to space. You know, there's a chance. She wouldn't necessarily get to reunite with Bright, but that it's better than her hanging around Hong Kong, kind of sitting duck. And she and Bright had decided that regardless of everything else going on, they did want to raise the kids in space. So even if she can't reunite with Bright, there's still that goal to bring Hathaway and Chaman up in the colonies. So when she ultimately decides not to, I think that's an acknowledgement both of the fact that all of space is going to be a war zone and that anywhere the Outdoomla goes <laughs> is going to be a war zone. That while it would be comforting to be among people who know her and bright, people who are going to be looking out for them, some of her oldest friends, it's not actually safer for the children. And there is in that an implication that very much unlike the one-year war, there are actually parts of the world that aren't war zones. It may not be predictable where they are. No one expected Hong Kong to become a war zone, but even so, there are safe places. In a way, I think Mirai's family's dilemma here really represents the principal dilemma of the show, because they are, in like every sense of the word, innocence here. After being captured, they're in danger in an abstract kind of way, like they might be executed, like the sword is hanging over them, but they're not in immediate danger. It's more of like an inevitable danger. <laughs> they are, however, in the most danger they're going to be in once Camille shows up and once the rescue operation starts. It's the effort to fight the Titans that puts innocents like Mirai in the most danger in an immediate sense, even if the ultimate goal is to free them from that inevitable, somewhat distant danger. And this is the same position that Hong Kong is in. Hong Kong is a neutral, innocent city. It's in danger because Ayug came here. And because Luo and Co. is known as a company that would be willing to deal with Ayug. Sure. I'm just hesitant to put all the blame on the Aldumla for showing up. Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, the real blame is for the Titans, right? <laughs> yeah. The Aldumla could have shown up and the Titans could have not decided to send the Psycho Gundam into the city center. They could have not threatened to start indiscriminately bombing the city. Like, the Titans need to be fought. They have to be stopped. But the process of fighting them puts huge numbers of innocents at risk. I think that's one of the points the show is trying to make. And I noticed in this episode, it's very brief, but even in the like tiny little background animation, this theme gets reinforced because when Camille hears the radio broadcast that Mirai and company are in danger and he's racing off to get back to the Aldumla to get into the Mark II to go save them, he very, very, very nearly runs over a mother pushing a stroller. They're like inches away from being mm -hmm. hit by his car. Ooh. You have to fight the Titans, but a lot of innocent people are going to get hurt. 
And now we have some Gundam names research on Hathaway Noah, Namikar Cornell, and for Murasame. It's been a while since we talked about names here, and we've picked up a bevy of new characters since arriving in Hong Kong, so let's get nominal. First up is the unsung star of this episode. Hathaway, hey, how long does a seven-year-old need to be drowning to get brain damage? Noah. This one is actually pretty easy. Hathaway and Noah are both real-world names, although Noah is usually a given name and Hathaway is usually a surname. Noah was in fact the most common given name for boys born in the U.S. from 2013 to 2015. Its popularity derives from the biblical figure Noah, but the name's origins may be traced as far back as Babylonia and Assyria. Hathaway, as we might expect, got the name Noah from his dad, while the inspiration to give Bright the surname Noah in First Gundam probably came from his role as the captain of a ship full of refugees just trying to survive in the midst of a world-altering disaster. The One-Year War was a human-made disaster, but it's not hard to see it as a kind of biblical flood for the Space Age. As for Hathaway, the name comes from Anglo-Saxon. I've seen two plausible explanations for its origins. The first is that it comes from the Anglo-Saxon words heath for heath and weg, way. So it would be a name for a person living near a road across the heath. Heath being a sort of scrubby field? Specifically one where the soil has high acidity. Very common in the north of England. Yeah, it mostly consists of small... Shrubs very low to the ground. Alternatively, Hathaway might share its origin with the Germanic Hedwig, which has medieval antecedents like Hathawick, Hathawiga, Hedewi, Hadui, and so on. Hedwig derives from the words for combat and dueling, and therefore so might Hathaway. Now, did Tomino and company know any of this when they chose the name Hathaway Noah? I would guess not. In fact, I suspect that there is a much more contemporary explanation for Hathaway Noah's name, and that's 1970s and 80s child actor and star of the 1984 hit NeverEnding Story, Noah Hathaway. NeverEnding Story was released in Japan on March 16, 1985, and Hathaway Noah makes his first appearance in Gundam 105 days later, on (laughs) June 29th. Noah Hathaway's other major role was as the six-year-old Boxy of the 1978-1980 original Battlestar Galactica TV show. Boxy was an energetic youngster who, after the 30-year time skip in the original Battlestar Galactica continuity, grew up to become a military pilot and leader, just like his stepfather, Captain Apollo. If you recall from episode 1.36, Implications, friend of the show, Sean, aka Flying Grizzly, offered some compelling evidence that the creators of First Gundam were aware of and inspired by the original Battlestar Galactica. And if so, then Noah Hathaway's earlier role might have been an entirely separate inspiration for Hathaway Noah's name. The next name on my list for today is Namikar Cornell. Namikar seemed like it would be a puzzle until I realized that in the Japanese it's actually just Namika, and that's a not uncommon name for a Japanese woman. Namika also sounds similar to Namikaze, an expression that literally means wind and waves, but is used idiomatically to mean discord. Sturm and Drang. To make trouble is to create Namikaze, similar to English sayings like rock the boat or make waves. 
I would have chalked that up to a mere coincidence until this episode, where Namikar seizes the controls of the Titan's windswept and waved-tossed boat, which she then rocks in her haste to get away. As for Cornell, in the Japanese, it's Koneru. But here the translation is more helpful because Cornell is a real, if somewhat uncommon, surname, and Koneru Daigaku is the standard Japanese way to say Cornell University. The university takes its name from carpenter, mechanic, traveling plow salesman, inventor, and eventually staggeringly wealthy telegraph magnate, politician, and founder of the university that bears his name, Ezra Cornell. As for why Cornell? For that, I'm afraid I can only speculate. There were plenty of internationally famous figures that studied at or were employed by the institution, and Cornell is a major research university that has, over the years, produced important research in relevant fields like high-energy physics, memory, child psychology, and development. I assume that they needed a sciency last name for Dr. Discord here, and Cornell just felt right. It also carries that imprimatur of, like, the Ivy League. It sounds very highfalutin. <laughs> it sounds prestigious. I love learning about all these university founders who had very mundane jobs, but then somehow became incredibly wealthy. Like, I want to say one of the women's universities was founded by a brewer who just happened to become exceptionally successful and cared about women's education. <laughs> So the story for Ezra Cornell is that he was this traveling plow salesman, uh, a job he had taken on because after he got married, simply being a carpenter and mechanic wasn't enough to pay for his family. And these were the early days of the Telegraph, and an associate of Samuel Morse, who owned some share of the rights to the initial Telegraph designs, wanted to bury the Telegraph wires. So he found the local expert on plows, which was Ezra Cornell, who invented a plow to dig the trenches to bury the telegraph lines. That's pretty cool. It turned out that burying the telegraph lines didn't actually work, but he stayed involved in the project. And then decided education was important and he wanted to fund a university. Well, Cornell was a land-grant college. Basically, the U.S. government decided education is important. We have a lot of land. Let's give huge tracts of land to these wannabe colleges to fund the creation of the colleges. Most colleges immediately sold all the land and used the money to <laughs> become a college. Uh, Cornell, with Ezra Cornell running the show, didn't do that because he already had a lot of money and a lot of business sense. And so he managed the land until he could sell it at a time when it was actually worth a ton of money which is why Cornell is one of the richest universities in the world. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Finally, let's tackle four Murasame. Camille calls this one a difficult name, and for my purposes in examining these names, I have to agree with him. So I'm going to split the name in half, and I'm only going to focus on Murasame today. And I'm sure the four part will come up again sometime soon. Within the world of the story, Four's surname Murasame comes from the supposedly brilliant Dr. Murasame, head of the Murasame Newtype Lab in Japan, where Four was trained and the Psycho Gundam was developed. But part of the reason Camille calls the name difficult probably lies in the fact that Murasame is not a common name in Japan. At least not for real people in real life. Murasame means literally village rain, but it is usually translated either as autumn rain or passing showers. 
It's a poetic term used to describe the kind of rainstorms common in autumn that fall intermittently hard and gentle. That's already a pretty good name for four, since, as we saw in this episode, her life is already dictated by the alternating rhythm of calm periods before agonizing headaches. Murasame has been used as a name for a succession of destroyers in the Japanese Navy, originally in 1903 and then again in 1937, 1959, and 1996. It's also used in the pen names of some artists, and frequently as a character name in popular media. It appears frequently in video games, including the Final Fantasy series, where it's used as the name for a magical sword, usually associated in some way with water or rain. Most of these examples, though, post-date Zeta Gundam, and some of them are probably references to Zeta Gundam. There are two key literary antecedents that might have inspired Four's name. And I personally think that in the real-world creation of Zeta, Four was probably named Murasame first, and the lab took its name from her, rather than the other way around. The first of these is also the source for all of those magical water swords, and this is the 106-volume Japanese samurai epic Nanso Satomi Hakenden. Originally published over a 30-year period from 1814 to 1842. This story is the tale of eight samurai, all descended from a dog, and their adventures in Warring States-era Japan. And it features a magical sword capable of summoning rainstorms called Murasame. You kind of buried the lead on that one. Descended from a dog? Yes. Here's the problem. (laughs) The original Nanso Satomi Hakenden has never been translated into English. Ah. One or two chapters here and there have, and there is an amateur translator online who is slowly working their way through the whole thing. But I'm mostly having to rely on secondhand information for this. My understanding is that they're human and the descent is more like a spiritual kind of thing, but like I said, this is all secondhand information. But it's hard to overstate this novel's popularity. It was adapted for TV in the 1930s, 50s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, including the 2013 Hakenden, Eight Dogs of the East anime. So the Murasame sword that appears in Nanso Satomi Hakenden is similar to the divine Masamune and cursed Muramasa swords that we discussed back in episode 1.19, Duel in the Desert, but it was invented for this adventure novel rather than deriving from a Buddhist parable. As a side note, a lot of people confuse the Murasame for the Muramasa. They are not the same sword. That is just a common mistake you see. But it is the second and older literary source that I think was in Tomino's mind when he decided on Murasame. In 14th century Japan, in the early part of the period when military dictators from the Ashikaga clan ruled most of Japan from their seat in the Muromachi district and just around a century after the defeat of Kublai Khan's two attempted invasions of the Japanese archipelago, a father-son playwriting duo, Kanami and Zeami, created one of no theater's most enduring masterpieces, Matsukaze, or The Wind in the Pines. In a weird and delightful coincidence, Matsu, the pine tree part of Wind in the Pines, has the same double meaning in Japanese that pine has in English. It can mean a pine tree, but it can also mean to pine for someone. And you can only tell the difference by context or if you can see what characters were used to write Matsu. 
Naturally, this makes pine trees perfect imagery for poems about longing. There's some debate in the scholarship about who created which parts, but suffice it to say that between the two of them, they wrote the play as we receive it today. The story is drawn from an episode in the famous Tale of Genji, which was in turn inspired by the exile of a real courtier. Matsukaze is a ghost story, framed through the eyes of an itinerant priest who visits the seaside at a place called Suma. There he finds an old pine tree overlooking the shore, and a memorial tablet affixed to it. He decides to spend the night nearby, at a battered shack on the beach belonging to two sisters, who lead a miserable existence extracting salt from the briny waves. As night falls, he recounts for the sisters a poem, written by the deceased imperial courtier Yukihira, who lived in exile there on the waters of Suma Bay for three years. The poem and the mention of Yukihira send the two sisters into paroxysms of grief, and the play's second act, its most masterful and important, begins as they explain that they weep because they are tormented by memories. When the courtier Yukihira was in exile at Suma Bay, he anchored his pleasure barge in the waters near shore, and whiled away the years of his exile reveling and refreshing his wearied spirit with a pale imitation of the courtly delights of the capital. He found among the local fisher girls two sisters who amused him. He invited them to join his little exile's court, gave them damask robes and delicate perfumes, taught them poetry and music, and gave them names of his own devising. But when, after three years, he was recalled from exile, he left his seaside princesses behind, returning them to meager poverty, as though the three years of love and luxury had been nothing but a dream. He promised to return to them, but despite his youth, he died shortly after his return to the capital. Now the misery of their lives is magnified by the awareness of what they have lost and can never regain. In Matsukaze, their agonies escalate, and the sisters are briefly taken by madness. They see the pine tree with the memorial placard and become convinced that it is Yukihira, and they run to embrace it. One of them still has his fine hunting cloak. Comforted and tormented by the memories of him that it stirs, she still wears it every day. She pines for him constantly, and is made miserable in her longing. She curses her memories. Her sister has forgotten those better days but the memories return to her now and torment her all the same. The environment responds to the chaos of their tormented souls. Madly the gale hallows through the pines, and breakers crash in Suma Bay through the frenzied night. Matsuo narasu kaze wa kurutta yoni fuki are. They beg the priest to pray for them. And as dawn breaks across the horizon and the nighttime shore calms, it is revealed that the two sisters died long ago. The memorial on the pine tree is for them, but their unhappy spirits have lingered on. This latter half of the play is really all about memories, 
living within them, being trapped by them, and the mixed blessing of forgetting. Even in death, the two sisters use the poetic names bestowed by Yukihira. The first, more prominent in the text, who still wears Yukihira's old hunting cloak and mistakes a pine tree for her lost love, is the wind in the pines, Matsukaze. Her sister, the one who has forgotten all of the joy and all of the pain, is autumn rain, Murasame. Next time on episode 2.20, Stealing Time, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 19 and Pouting. Four invents Naruto running. It's not a date, it's new type research. Turning into a pumpkin. Foreshadowing. Psycho Pixie new type girl. Ben Wooder went to the Charaznable school of flushing out rats. Sunrise gets their art on. Wong Lee in a skirt, and Four and Camille just explain the show. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, This show should be about romance. Mobile suits are boring and kissing is awesome. On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Take off my watch, which I often forget to do. Uh, and I constantly, like turn and hit the mic. That is a thing <laughs> that I do with great frequency. Maybe if I put it more in front. Maybe. Why don't you pass your watch over here so that I can fiddle with it and drop it? No thanks. <laughs> I'd prefer not to. When I turn to look at you. Do not behold. <laughs> do not behold me. We just need to make sure that uh, Ruby's wife never finds out that I'm actually just some nerd with a microphone. I think Bill Torchka needs therapy. A lot of it. <laughs> um, maybe remove the bit where I said Bill Torchka needs therapy, because that's not why I dislike her. I'm, I'm probably going to put Bill Torchka needs therapy in the outtakes. <laughs> okay. I dislike her. She happens to also <laughs> need...
copious amounts of therapy. And you might like her a lot more post-therapy. That's true. But you don't dislike her because she needs therapy. Yeah. In the original Battle in the original Battlestar Galactica, Battles Battlestar Galactica is a hard thing to say. <laughs> Just a warning, if the sound of someone clearing their throat really bothers you, you should probably end the episode now. Yay! Good stuff. Great stuff. Stopping recording now. Okay.